Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. I'd like to begin by asking you to talk to each other about a topic. I heard um, in the Dharma talk I was listening to recently that one of the uh, definitions of becoming enlightened, of becoming an ar- the term is arahant, an enlightened being like a Buddha, is that you um, finally gain sanity. And that all of us unenlightened beings are not seeing clearly uh, and are under some delusions. And um, so I'm going to make an argument in my talk tonight and somehow connect it to MLK and the continued struggle on this planet for equality and uh, to end the ignorance and insanity of, of racism and all forms of ignorance and oppression. So I'm going to make an argument that we're all fucking crazy. <laughs> and that the, cra- the craziest stance is to pretend like you're not. And to, you know, to believe your mind and think, no, I'm sane and rational and right all of the time. And uh, I'm not racist. You know, and, you know anytime you deny the racist conditioning that's in all of us. Um, So for the small groups, I'd like you to talk to each other about uh, what's some of the crazy shit your mind does with like the humility and the the openness and like, you know, it's a safe space. And, and with this perspective, like we're all crazy and it's not your fault. It's not your fault that your mind doesn't know your own worth and tells you insane things like you're unworthy or you're unlovable or you're un, uh, incapable of happiness or hopeless or, um, you know, any kind of messages of shame or, you know, which are just insanity when your mind tells you you're not good enough and you're you're not going to be okay or whatever you know crazy shit your mind tells you um you know the the real issue is us believing it it's not your fault that your mind is crazy it's you know part of what the dharma is promising us is that through this meditative training we'll be able to have discernment and see like oh these are just thoughts that aren't worth trusting and these are thoughts wisdom thoughts that we can begin to trust so small groups what are some of the crazy things that your mind does sharing with each other two or three people at home i'll put you in uh breakout rooms we'll discuss that some more after we meditate finding a way to sit that's upright relaxed a posture that feels sustainable
we allow our eyes to be gently closed, take a moment to settle in and release any unnecessary tension the body may be holding the brow or the jaw, shoulders, belly, softening. Allowing the cushion or the chair to support you. Imagine the skeleton of your body, the bones stacked, body upright, and the flesh of the body hanging loosely around the upright skeleton. Just enough resistance to gravity to stay upright, but not so much that we're clenching our jaw or tightening our belly. This softness, this openness that allows us to be more receptive to what we're feeling. Bringing an attitude, inclining your heart and your mind towards kindness, towards friendliness, towards accepting ourselves just as we are in this moment. Directing Mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, kind, investigative awareness, curiosity, interest to the sensations of the breath. Disengaging from the thinking mind's tendency to dwell in the future and past. Directing awareness to the body. Paying special attention to the sensations each breath creates as it naturally comes and goes. No need to control the breath. Think about it more as receiving the sensations that the body creates with each breath.
Each time the awareness is drawn back into thinking, just acknowledge it with friendliness, patience, and acceptance. Perhaps even noting what kind of thought it is, a plan, a memory, worrying, fantasizing, regretting, resenting, what kind of thought is calling for your attention and then come back, acknowledge it, then return to the breath. So important to learn that we do have some choice about whether we stay involved in what the mind is doing. Seeing that we can actually choose to shift our awareness out of the thought, back to the body, just for half a breath, just breathing in with full awareness and comprehension that I'm breathing in. Thoughts in the background. Breathing out with full awareness, clear comprehension, understanding, feeling the sensation of breathing out.
If you're new to the practice, you can continue to just give your full attention to the breath, come back. Part of the practice here is breaking our addiction to the mind, our identification with the thinking mind. One of the other aspects of our practice is just learning to observe the mind, to give our attention to what the mind is up to. Watching the self-centered, fear-based, craving tendency of the human mind. So if you'd like to, you can shift from body awareness to just observing your mind and the three-ring circus that it is. The judgments and the fears, the desires, that message that the mind so consistently gives us of what would make us happy, the pleasure, the comfort, the success, the craving for things to be different than they are. I'll be happy when. I would be happy if. trying to bring an attitude of kindness and acceptance to the mind, the mind states that arise, friendliness, perhaps even treating your own mind like you would a confused friend with compassion, with patience. Perhaps even imagining that these are not your thoughts, that you're paying attention to somebody else's mind. That it wasn't so personal that you were just watching somebody think about themselves. <laughs> Worry, resent. Fantasize, crave. Trying to almost bring a sense of how ludicrous some of our thoughts are. How crazy some of the ideas, the attitudes, the opinions that our minds hold.
paying attention to the impermanent nature of thought, of sensation, of emotion, the arising and the passing. Paying attention to the impersonal nature, see how the thoughts seem to proliferate all by themselves. Where do they arise from? Where do they pass to? What's generating these thoughts, these views, opinions? What is thinking? hard to identify what part of us, what part of the mind is the thinker. But we bring awareness to the process of thought. Coming to see that just as the body breathes all by itself, the heart beats all by itself, also the mind continues to think all by itself. Most of our thoughts conditioned, learned, inherited, from our families, from our culture.
I've gotten some shit for saying this in the past, but I haven't learned. Some of uh, Martin Luther King's views and politics, uh, I believe, were inspired by Buddhism. I at one time gave a Dharma talk that MLK was a Buddhist, and then I got a whole bunch of shit <laughs> about it um, because he was very much a Christian. But a lot of his um, politics in uh, civil rights and in fighting ignorance and oppression were influenced, and he talked about how, much, how influenced he was by Mahatma Gandhi and Mahatma Gandhi's um, ahimsa, nonviolent uh, approach to creating uh, change, and uh, the nonviolence um, of, of Gandhi's message, which, you know, also Gandhi wasn't a Buddhist, he was a Hindu. But the argument that I want to make is that um, a lot of Hinduism is very violent. And if you look at most of the uh, Hindu texts, like the Mahabharata or the, um, you know, it's all about like justifications for war and violence. And, but there is this aspect of Hinduism that is uh, ahimsa, nonviolence. And uh, a lot of scholars would say that, uh, most of that nonviolence influence came from the Buddha. And that the kind of contemporary Hindu teachings uh, to Buddhism are quite kind of like the Bible, like eye for an eye. Sometimes you just got to fucking kill. Sometimes it's okay to oppress and it's their karma and all of that bullshit. But Buddhism, you know, has this teaching that says uh, it's never okay to harm any living being. And uh, that, that there's a, a worthiness and an ability and a, uh, equality that all beings deserve respect and love and compassion and, uh, and, and violence is never justified and oppression is never justified in the Buddhist teachings. And certainly in Hinduism, it's a kind of, uh, uh, you know, so Gandhi was, you know, a Hindu, but you know, in some ways, he was uh, kind of preaching a Buddhist message within his Hindu caste system, you know, which is a racist system. You know, they, they kind of in India, they've used their religion to justify racism, much like Christians have used Christianity to justify racism. Um, the Buddha was a, a radical um, person who said, like, there's no justification for racism, period. Period. Doesn't the internet get fucked up sometimes only because we gotta take. Happens sometimes. So, um, I don't know. It's, maybe it's not a good argument to make, but I I, I feel like I feel like a, a fan of. Um, of MLK and it's MLK Day, and I feel like uh, um, uh, like the the struggle for justice and equality and and just for what's right, just for for sanity, you know, this kind of 
continues and certainly not over and um, and I think it's worth uh, reflecting on how uh, you know this kind of Buddhist conversation that we're having uh, had a big influence on on Gandhi and had a big influence on MLK and can you know and is influencing me and all of us in how can we develop enough wisdom to see clearly, to be awake, to see clearly, and to see that gender and orientation and race. Uh, have nothing to do with worth or ability or um, worthiness of kindness and, and respect and compassion. And it's a radical perspective that MLK was proposing, that the Buddha was proposing that. Um, and, and that's why, like, it's so easy to make this argument, like, what a fucking insane world we live in where it's radical and revolutionary to believe in human rights. You're fucking real far left, aren't you? You're real, real liberal. You believe in human rights. <laughs> As though like there's a... Uh, I thought it was really interesting where I started tonight um, when I heard this definition of in, uh, awakening and enlightenment as um, finally attaining sanity. And this perspective that we live in this world with a lack of sanity. And the reason that there's so much ignorance and oppression in this world is because people are crazy. <laughs> Now, I probably should pause and trigger warning, kind of like some people really are crazy. <laughs> and I don't want to dismiss or diminish or um, kind of uh, that mental illness is really a thing. And, you know, that there, there some, some of us, some people are really struggling with a mind that does not function um, rationally at all. Um, but even those of us who think that we, you know, don't have deep uh, mental illnesses and think that we have a fairly functional, rational view of the world, um, probably don't. Um, you know, that definition of insanity of doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Or, you know, I, I just feel like there's an easy argument here for, like, you know, we all know that clinging creates suffering in our lives. Do you know that? Clinging creates, why do you keep doing it? You'd have to be crazy to keep clinging over and over and over, even though you know this is gonna hurt me. Every time I do it, it's gonna hurt me, but I keep doing it over and over and over. It's a, it's a same result. Same behavior, you know, we all know, right? Like you've read a couple of Buddhist books, you've been practicing, you know that meeting pain with anything other than compassion, meeting it with anger, meeting it with hatred, meeting it with aversion is going to make it worse. But we keep doing it. Oh, this insane cycle of, I keep 
doing the same thing over and over and thinking like this time I'm going to get angry. I'm going to get, you know, uh, resentful this time. I'm going to cling and it's not going to hurt me. It's this insane cycle that humanity is in. Same thing over and over, clinging, aversion, taking it personal, right? You know. Now, part of this view uh, that can be helpful from the, you know, internally, we can be like, oh yeah, my mind just does that all by itself. It's not, not that personal. I just live with this crazy mind that gives me really bad advice. It says cling. It says crave. It says hate. It says judge. It says fear. And I just live with this mind that is constantly giving me this uh, dysfunctional, uh, you know, message that's going to lead to suffering. And now there's a part of us that knows, like, that's going to lead to suffering, but we don't quite have enough wisdom yet. Right? And this is the difference between the enlightened ones, the Buddhas, who know, like, oh, no, I'm not going to cling anymore. That hurts. I'm going to develop enough wisdom. I'm going to meditate to the point where I don't do that anymore because I don't want to continue suffering. So at the kind of inside and outside, um, if we can have this humility about our own minds, I think it will really help. If you can have some healthy skepticism of your views and opinions and your tendency, you know, this inquiry of like, my mind is telling me this, is it true? Should I cling? Should I resent? Should I, is that good advice that my mind is giving me? Do you do that sometimes? Have a like healthy skepticism of what your mind is up to? I think that's a part of, uh, and that kind of like, oh, my mind's a little bit crazy. It's not the most trustworthy Such a dilemma we, I feel like it's such a fucking dilemma that I live in and that we all live in of, there's a part of me that knows I can't trust my own views and opinions and mind, but also I do. <laughs> right, but also like it's, the, it's my mind and it's, I believe it. But uh, there's that part of me that knows, like, it's not that trustworthy. It gives me terrible advice all the time. But I forget and I, I believe it. And I go back into that, that insanity of, oh, well, maybe this time it'll be different. Not, it's not even that, it's not that conscious. It's not that intentional. Part of what we're doing in our, our meditation and our practice of the Dharma is, is waking up to the awareness that knows what's arising, has some discernment, like, oh, look what's happening in my mind. Questioning it, pausing, questioning our views, our opinions. And if we can do this, not only with our, you know, doing it internally will help a lot for our own sense of well-being, but also how much of our suffering comes from conflict and from, um, if we can do this with each other, I think it really helps 
uh, us have more compassion for each other. To be like, oh, you're just crazy. <laughs> you don't want to say that to, to you know, your partner, your, your, your friend or your mom or your whoever, your boss. And be like, you don't want to say it. But having that understanding of like, oh, this person is not an enlightened being. This is not a, you know, this is not a fully wise enlightened being I'm relating to, whoever it is. And um, giving them some room for that confusion that they're in at times, having some compassion for each other. Uh, like, not, not taking it so personal, like if you're walking down the street and you know there's somebody that's clearly psychotic or you know mentally ill in some way and they swear at you, hey, go fuck yourself. And you're just like, oh, you're a crazy person. You don't take it that personal, right? Because they're 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 swearing at every car that goes by. And if we could do that a little bit more in our relationships, when somebody <laughs> who you think is rational and you know, and they say, "Hey, go fuck yourself," and you're like, well, "How dare you?" Rather than like, "Oh, wow, you're." You're a person. You're a person that is being reactive to their emotions and isn't seeing clearly and isn't coming from a place of wisdom. You're coming from a place of confusion, a place of ignorance. And having more <laughs> compassion for the human condition, for our own minds and for each other's minds. Because it's pretty clear that we live in a, a world where uh, just a, you know the just about everybody's asleep, <laughs> including us. You know, like we're not we're trying to wake up. You know, those of us who are meditating and trying to be on a spiritual path and trying to be mindful, like we're trying, but none of us are enlightened, right? All of us also get reactive and obey our minds and believe our views and opinions are the right ones and they're better than everyone else's. And, and um, you know, and think that sometimes because my views are more righteous than their views, I should be angry at them, right? And that's the, the moment of insanity. That's that moment of, I should suffer at you because of your perceived ignorance. Because you're confused and you don't see it the way I see it. So I hate you. I'm going to suffer at you and hatred, which I'm going to suffer at you. Rather than a compassionate for ourselves, like, mm, I don't want to cling to my views and opinions. And there is a place for, you know, what's true and what's not true. And, you know, it's nice that we have the Dharma to kind of refer to, be like, okay, are my views and opinions in alignment with the teachings, with the Dharma? You know, is it coming from kindness? Is it coming from compassion? Is it coming from all beings have the ability to awaken? All beings are worthy of kindness and respect, no matter how confused they've become no enemies i heard uh, a john recently one of my teachers say 
that he, you can wake him up, <laughs> said that he, he, you know, and this is a, a Buddhist monk, one of been one of my teachers a long time. He said that he never um, gets really upset with anybody. He said that no matter what people do, he said, I never really get very upset with people because, um, because of this view of like, why would I take their stuff personally? And, you know, decades of meditation all of the time, he's just like, you know, and, and, you know, he lives in a big community and, you know, there's drama in the community. He said, you know, and I have to deal with it. And you know, I will sometimes, it's his job to um, kind of admonish, he's the boss. And sometimes he has to say, you know, you know what you're doing is causing harm, right? <laughs> he said, but I don't feel upset by people because I see them as, you know, not self. I don't see it as this personal thing. And I certainly don't take it personal. The Buddha talked about his relationship. He had a cousin, um, Devadatta. Devadatta was Siddhartha's cousin. And there's lots of stories in the time of the Buddha where um, Devadatta was jealous of, of the Buddha and was unenlightened and uh, attacked the Buddha and tried to sabotage the Buddha and accused the Buddha of different things, all of these plots and was always trying to cause harm and was trying to gain power. And he was coming from this selfish, self-centered, he was trying to gain power. And, um, and the Buddha said, I, the Buddha never got upset with him, never got angry at him, just constantly met. And at one point, um, Devadatta tried to murder the Buddha, I think more than once. At one point he, he rolled a boulder down on the, on the, trying to smash the Buddha while he was meditating or something. <laughs> and uh, the boulder smashed the Buddha's foot and like really injured him. He like limped the rest of his, like had a, a bad, you know, broken foot. Um, he, he almost got out of the way, but it smashed his leg and his foot. And the Buddha said, I just have compassion for the confusion of my cousin. And, you know, just seeing through the, the potential of our practice to just have compassion for each other. And, um, you know, to have compassion for people that hold really confused views. And, you know, like what's happening in Palestine, Israel, rather than hating Zionism, uh, having compassion for the confusion uh, that justifies murder, rather than hating racists, having compassion for the ignorance that creates uh, overt, intentional racist behavior. Uh, or homophobic or sexist or all of the isms and ways that we hurt each other. And there's some balance, I think, um, between using this 
understanding to uh, see the world and uh, try try to see the world in a wise way and see like okay everybody's kind of a little bit off all unenlightened beings are a bit off <laughs> not quite all there not quite you know in that cycle of craving and aversion and self-centeredness having more patience more tolerance more compassion for each other while still uh, being socially and politically engaged like the buddha was towards creating a positive change against the caste system against racism you know and the buddha was outspoken uh, about uh, the ignorance of the ter terminology in that was the caste system but racism and we live in a caste system still and india is in a caste system still but it didn't stop him from speaking out against it and so we don't want to use Sometimes I think there's a danger, and I see it in myself, um, of becoming complacent, of getting, getting a wisdom view that says, oh, well, everybody's just crazy, so we can just be complacent, because everyone, you know, of continuing to say, like, I want to not be complacent, but be engaged. I want to be active in undoing my own racist views, undoing my own sexist misogynistic homophobic whatever i've been conditioned with i want to take full responsibility for that and continue to encourage and support uh as an ally in any way that we can each other the internal work of what's going on in our own conditioned confused mind and having that humility to be like yeah i don't see clearly all of the time and and the mind is conditioned with a bunch of ignorance and for some reason i continue to most of the time believe my views and opinions without even deeply questioning where they come from so that encouragement to question them and then to have that openness for each other's um confusion and that patience with each other while also being committed to social political engagement and confronting ourselves and each other in a loving way rather than kind of using righteousness as a weapon what has happened more and more in the kind of cancel culture area where it's like well your views are ignorant so we should harm you we should cancel you. We should, um, rather than having some compassion for people that hold ignorant views, rather than having some patience and some encouragement and some support for uh, people who hold you know, ignorant views or have behaved in unskillful ways, having compassion, having reconciliation, having some patience and tolerance for each other rather than uh, that kind of view that says, let's get rid of, let's punish rather than have compassion. And there is a place for accountability. And so some of my thoughts about, um, I don't know if you do this, but 
and I don't think it's, it's not that easy to do, um, but I encourage it. And I, I think for me, I couldn't do it in the beginning. It took some years of practicing before I could begin to have a little bit of a sense of humor about what my mind was up to. But to lighten up a little bit about, uh, you know, and the humility and, and lightness around like, yeah, my mind is really fucking crazy sometimes. <laughs> you know, my mind tells me that I'm unworthy of love sometimes. And that's insane. That's not true. My mind tells me that, uh, you know, I should hate people that have caused me harm. That's insane. That's not true. And having a little bit of a lightness around it, or I should hate myself for the harm that I've caused. You know, all of these insane thoughts that the mind produces and, and being able to be like, oh, wow. Like in recovery, there's this... Um, I think, I guess it's a little bit sarcastic tendency. Like, um, like if there's a new person that's saying something really annoying <laughs> and you say to them, thanks for sharing. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you say thanks for sharing, like, and you mean it, but sometimes you say like, thanks for sharing. <laughs> thanks for sharing your views and your, you know, keep coming back. <laughs> You know, like if they tell you to keep coming back, you're fucked up. <laughs> but if we can do that to our own minds, like say to your mind, thanks for sharing. <laughs> keep coming back. <laughs> like having that a little bit of sense of humor with what our minds are up to. If you and you can't do it until you can do it, like everything. But trying to orient with some lightness and some uh, friendliness and some sense of humor. Sometimes we get we take it all so seriously and we're so hard on ourselves that we're not able to do it yet. And and even this talk, you know, you could use it as a way to be like, yeah, I'm insane and I keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And I keep believing my mind and why do I, you know, and we can use it as another kind of fuel for the judging mind rather than a, a looseness of like, yeah, well, it's the great thing about Sangha. It's the great thing about coming to get, you know, talk to each other in the small groups. Like, I mean, how cool was your small group? And everybody was like, yeah, my mind's fucked. <laughs> my mind's really unkind and really confused and really neurotic sometimes. And, you know, really doesn't have my own best interest at heart. How often? And so, can, you know, convinced that. And then we normalize it. You know, it's one of the functions of community and communicating with each other in this open way of normalizing. Like, yeah, we're all in this human condition and it's tough and it's serious and there's a lot of work to do internally and um, be gentle be patient laugh at yourself sometimes laugh at your mind sometimes if you can
thinking about um, Wes Nisker. Wes Nisker was a meditation teacher from San Francisco, old hippie. I used to teach with him quite a bit. And he inspired me a lot. He, and he had a real sense of humor. And actually, sometimes he even had this like one man show that he would do that he called Dharmatainment, <laughs> where it was like half Buddhist stuff, but half comedy. And he really uh, had a, a serious practice, but also really just was able to bring lightness to it. And, and um, he had a skit that he used to do about how on his first meditation retreat, uh, he realized that like he was living with like that his mind was like a terrible roommate. And he said, at some point, I just started to treat my mind like this really like bad roommate that like didn't do the dishes and didn't, you know, and he said, and it really helped me to kind of get that distance and be like, yeah, I live with this mind that's just not very pleasant to live with not very kind, not very loving, not very generous, not very helpful around the house. Um, and he said, and I, and I was just always angry at my mind and I was always taking it personal. And he said, but over the years, uh, he said, you know, two things happened. I learned to not take it so personal. And also um, as I meditated more and more and practiced the precepts and followed this path, this Buddhist path, actually the, the, my, my roommate, um, grew up a bit and uh, the mind does mature and start giving us good advice at some point and and that's where like discernment is so necessary with our thoughts we don't want to oh because sometimes you know eventually your mind starts saying hey forgive don't stay angry you should you know you've, you've been practicing this stuff meet this with forgiveness or, you know, this is an opportunity for compassion, or this is an opportunity for generosity. And at some point, your mind starts giving you good advice, and it's trustworthy, and it's in line with what we've been studying and practicing and aspiring to. So not all of our, eventually, not all of our thinking is untrustworthy. But still, uh, there's the image, I know for myself, 35 years of practice so far, um, and the internal landscape has shifted a lot from where I was decades ago. And where my, you know, when I started practicing and my mind was all confusion and self-centered fear-based ignorance. And now, only sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all of the time anymore, only sometimes after decades of practice. And maybe only sometimes is as good as it gets. Now, when I hear Ajahn Amaro say, I never resent anybody, I'm like, fuck, I'm not there. <laughs> I totally judge and resent people. But, I'm but my mind at this point is pretty quick to say, meet them with compassion, meet them with forgiveness. I don't not experience resentment the way that he's saying he doesn't even experience it. I experience it. But I'm quick to say, I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. I, I have compassion for the confusion that led to the unskillful behavior as much as I can in this moment. You know, the Dharma has given me that response. I haven't gotten to the place of not being reactive in that way. 
because maybe it, on some level it's as good as it gets. Uh, and I always come back to uh, Mara. Mara is the the Buddhas, and you know, in some level, these are images of either Mara or Mahakala, which in the Tibetan, uh, for those of you at home, I'm pointing to these paintings of the kind of wrathful deities, wrathful deities of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and, and are actually they're actually considered um, deities of compassion, fierce compassion. That sometimes compassion has to be uh, aggressive, that there needs to be a fierce response, fiercely compassionate response. But also Mara gets depicted in this same sort of like demon-like um, image. Uh, and it's that part of our mind that continues to be self-centered, craving, that part of our mind that says you should cling. It's Mara. It's one of these little demons being like, you should get attached to this. You should hate this. You should be reactive. You should take this personal. I, me, mine. Right? And it's not conscious, and we're not even aware enough to hear it. We just take it personal. We're not even aware enough to hear the mind say, you should. We just do. But the Buddha said the more mindful he got, and as he awoke up, he was able to see, oh, those are just the um, unskillful, conditioned uh, voices of, you know, craving and aversion and self-centeredness. And now, he said, now I just respond, I see you, Mara. When the mind is encouraging suffering in any way, it's Mara. I see you, Mara and relating to that aspect of the mind rather than from it, rather than letting it push us around. Last thing I was thinking about for tonight and we'll have some discussion. I said in the beginning of the practice, and I think in order to get to the place of sense of humor and discernment, with what's happening uh, emotionally and mentally. First, first foundation, mindfulness of the breath is the practice that helps us break our addiction to thinking. We first have to see, we have choice over whether or not we stay involved in what our mind is up to. We can disengage and come back to the body. We don't have to stay in it. We can disengage and then re-engage and disengage. And I think you have to get somewhat good at that, somewhat able to concentrate in the body before you can really observe in a non-identified uh, way with what the mind is up to. Breaking our addiction to thinking. And uh, I don't know, I, I don't remember them, I could bring them up, but like in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're not sure if you're an alcoholic, they have 20 questions. So if you're not sure if you're addicted to your mind or not, you can take those same 20 questions and replace drinking with thinking. <laughs> and there are questions like, um, do you ever think in the morning before work? <laughs> Is thinking interfering with your relationships? <laughs> Is thinking, uh, you know, do you think alone? <laughs> uh, 
So uh, any questions or comments or anything from, if you have a question at home, it's in the reactions tab or here, anything. Please, Joe. I have a little comment. Um, I was listening on the way here. I decided to walk here today because I didn't get my workout. So I thought, oh, I'll walk from Santa Monica and that'll get me here and get me a workout. And then I have to walk back. So, but I decided to listen to a couple of talks from Adi Shante, which is one of my favorite teachers. Mm -hmm. And right before I got to the entrance, he talked about this turning point that he had that he came upon early in his practice, where he just was meditating one day and he decided, because that roommate, those thoughts, the mind, going, 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 he, he decided he would just treat every thought as completely irrelevant. And just, it just sounds like such a simple thing, but it actually really produces profound results, you know, and it, it just immediately, I was like, yeah, he just has a way of, you know, it's irrelevant. That's, you know, so when it's really, you know, you're really getting deep in there, just, you know, flip the switch. It's irrelevant. It's not personal. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> there is no you. Really disassociating from, yeah. yeah. We can do that temporarily, but yeah. then, of course, then you have to be like, oh, well, now my mind's saying you should drink some water. Do I trust that thought? <laughs> Is that a relevant thought? That's right. Survival. <laughs> so during periods of meditation, we can do yeah. that, kind of sit there and just really observe the whole thing as right. none of it's worth following. Right. I think it's easier. Yeah. Please. Um, I was just, it, it, uh, it kind of touched on it tonight. Something that came up, uh, there was a occasion that they were talking about was, uh, some brothers of the Christian who love the, the New Testament for Jesus, love everybody type thing. And, uh, talking about Martin Luther King, and, you know, he was Christian and you know, Buddhism talk about compassion a lot, you know, word love a lot. And I know love can mean different things in different contexts and stuff. It's sort of, I don't know, just the Buddhist perspective on love. Could you, Jason, talk about metta? What did he talk about? It was a question I mean, he's here, so we day. could just ask him. But... Oh. <laughs> just, just round two, man. <laughs> did you talk about metta in that? No, uh, we it was it was a comparison between love and compassion why you know what there isn't much talk of love and why why is that where christianity has a lot to do with love and this kind of omnipotent love is really a lot of what i think is talked about mm -hmm. uh, within christianity anyways what i ended up there it's so someone asked what's the trans like what's the poly word for love and the, was my, my understanding is actually Pema is the, is the direct translation. I did a little bit of looking into it, but that's what we were talking about, compassion versus love as central in the Buddhist teachings. Yes, I talked about metta, but metta really isn't about love. It's about friendliness and kindness, as you know. So take it away. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't really know what to say, and, and it depends on what the definition of love is. Because I feel like love is a word that means a whole bunch of other things. You know, you have to define love with things like kindness and generosity and acceptance. And um, what are the qualities of love? And I think that all of the qualities of 
of love are quite clearly talked about as specific qualities in, in Buddhism. You know, my, my sense, anyways, my opinion, my view of what love means is that it's uh, more of a, a sense of generosity, of a sense of wanting to give than wanting to get. And, and sometimes in our uh, language we uh, or our, our experience, love is quite mixed up with attachment, with clinging especially romantic love and, and personal love, where it's like, I, I, I want to keep, I love you, you know? You might even like kind of use like, I love you when you're really saying I'm attached to you, <laughs> uh, rather than like, I love you with a non-attached, open, connected desire for your happiness and your well-being and your, uh, you know, I want to give to you. I don't want to keep you. I don't want to, you know, keep you hostage in some way. Um, so because there's such a strong emphasis on non-clinging, non-attachment in Buddhism, um, might, might be a whole different definition of love than, you know, in some of the Western definitions, I don't know. So I'm not sure. And I don't know. I, I believe Jason, if he looked it up and it says it's Pema is, is more, more than Metta. Uh, metta gets translated as loving kindness, but I've been, you've probably heard me, I've been, when we were in Thailand, one of the monks gave us a loving kindness phrase, he said, say to yourself, and I did it here a few weeks ago, um, say to yourself, I love you, I have uh, always loved you, and I will always love you, and um, I've been doing that in my own meditation, and as a bunch of people in our, in our community have been doing that, doing this very and it's different than I usually teach or practice, very directive. And it's much the statement, I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you. Um, and I had one student who, um, after I did it here on Monday night, was like, I fucking hated that. <laughs> and this is bullshit. And this isn't real Buddhism. And the Buddha would never, you know, like it really had a big reaction to it. And I, uh, and we talked about it a couple different times. And I said, well, why? Like, what's love mean to you? What, what's wrong? You know, seems pretty, you know, kind of nice thing to say to yourself. <laughs> why does it feel, why are you so aversive to it? Like, what is your definition of love? And they said, you know, well, it's because it's all wrapped up in, you know, what was supposed to be a loving childhood that was quite abusive and neglectful. And, you know, my experience of love is that it fucking hurts and I didn't get it. And I said, well, you know, like, how about a bigger definition? How about a, a love is I accept you as you are. I care about you. I, I want to support you. I want to be generous and, and, you know, rather than uh, I, I'm going to, you know, kind of the love that we didn't get from our parents or the, the lack of acceptance and kindness and generosity that was the wound in that, in that case. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I was, there's also in one of Ajahn Amaro's talks in Thailand, he sort of momentarily pokes fun at Western psychology, this whole like love yourself thing. He's like, there is no self. Like, what are you trying to say that you love anyway? Right. There's nothing there to be loved. So, yeah, I guess maybe that's where it sort of breaks down in the Buddhist perspective. But... Yes. Um, but because of how we, and the Buddha was actually asked this at one point because the Buddha would say, use, he would use first person narratives and he would use, you know, he would say, I, 
at times. I mean, mostly he used the term tatataga, but and he would refer to other people as you know, you, they, them, he, him, her. You know, like he he would. And at some point, somebody asked the Buddha, "Is like, well, if there's no self, why are we using this?" love yourself kind of language and he said well you you know for convenience of communication you say things like i or me or mine but wisdom understands that there's no permanent self attached to the i love yourself you know and so for me when i you know for when i'm saying i love you or i love myself uh, i'm trying to see that and understand that and uh, i love this process of body and heart and mind that is unfolding here and these memories this consciousness this perception this all of these factors that we are right temporarily impermanent process that's unfolding that we call me our views our opinions the ego all of that stuff none of it is our ultimate permanent self but it is our experience and we're learning to love this process that's unfolding here rather than you know a permanent soul of you know it's a process that's unfolding and learn to fucking be loving towards this process learning and so for me love yourself love the process that's unfolding be kind be forgiving be patient be accepting of this human process that we call ourselves <laughs> i or me or mine but no it's not as personal as you think it is <laughs> not quite as personal as you think it is philip online go ahead uh so this might be um kind of in a, in a little different direction but when you were uh speaking before uh with clinging i thought of this uh <laughs> i was just scrolling through the youtube shorts the other night and i saw this clip where um this guy was uh windsurfing or something and um all of a sudden this whale comes out of the water and he just gets body slammed by it and uh it catches the harness and he gets dragged under the water and um saying like yeah he thought you know that was it he was done for and um and then just when he you know thought he was um, not gonna make it the harness snapped and he comes up to the surface and um so that just kind of like clicked for me as you know okay yeah that's really what this what that clinging process can be like especially with um addiction and yeah then the insanity is like that was wild let me let me get back out there <laughs> yeah, well. so i don't know if that offers much insight but i just want to <laughs> share that <laughs> i like it can you can you post a link to that in the chat 
<laughs> now, now I need to now I need to see it. Eric, last um, last one. I've asked a lot of questions around here. Um, I was in the lodge last night, but there was a lot of talk about the mind, and and one of the things that you said is like the mind's like an untrained dog. You never let an untrained dog off a leash, right? So you have to work on it. And so now this is all coming up. But something that struck me is, um, and Jason touched on this last week, you know, um, and I'm still having a difficult time with it because it's like someone says, fuck you. And then I look at him like, oh, you're so unskilled. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like it just strengthens the ego because I'm, I've, I've been meditating now. You know what I mean? Like, I still like, I, where's the... Do I, am I looking at myself at the same myself or my actions, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I feel like I understand the anchor for I until I start doing skillful things in my life. I have to kind of identify with that for me personally. Right. Mm -hmm. But where, where's the where's the line to where you're just like, are you looking at yourself as you are making a judgment on someone else's actions? Yes. Okay. Being aware of what your mind is up to right. and seeing, oh, it's a judgment and having some humility. Is it true? Am I coming from a place of wisdom or is this a self-centered fear-based reaction? Is this a loving, compassionate, wise questioning and having the humility be like, yeah, no, that's not how my mind functions yet. My function, my mind functions like, oh, fuck me. No, fuck you. <laughs> but having that pause and being like, even though that's what I want to say, I'm not going to say it. And I'm going to try to bring that, oh, this is just an unskillful, confused person. Uh, and maybe it does strengthen. There is a day, I think what you're pointing to is true. And there is a danger in becoming um, arrogant in uh kind of well everyone's asleep except for just a few of us <laughs> <laughs> we're the one percenters of the planet that are seeing clearly and responding wisely <laughs> and um there is a danger in that becoming a, an arrogant you know self uh um, inflation of the self, but I think it's okay to, it's better, you know, it's, it's like, that's part of the process too, then being able to turn toward that, you know, oh, I'm now I'm attached to my views and opinions, and I'm pretty sure that I'm right. And let me question that too. And let me question this sort of, I feel holier than thou, kind of, let me look at that and unpack that. But what a progress from uh, I'm proud of being compassionate, right? And the ego is identified with being wise from, I'll fucking bash your teeth in, yeah. right? Progress to just being a little, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty spiritual over here. You know, a little spiritual pride is way better than the alternative of picking up, getting loaded or acting out in a way that's going to create some real karma for us and probably some spiritual pride is part of the process that we also have to unpack and question and get free from in the long run 
rather than thinking there's some bypass to like, well, I want to practice perfectly so that I never have an inflated sense of self. It's probably just part of the process. At times, the ego is going to pick that up too and be like, really good job. <laughs> You're killing it. <laughs> You ever have that experience when you're meditating and your mind says to you, oh, you're doing a great job. <laughs> you're not thinking about anything. You, you're fucking killing it. <laughs> it's Eric's birthday, everybody. Happy birthday, Eric. We'll leave it there for tonight. Um, what do I have? We're almost up and ready for registration. I think we'll get it up with this week um, for this weekend retreat that we're gonna do in May in Echo Park, urban Los Angeles residential weekend retreat, May 10th through 12th. And this is instead of the annual Memorial Day retreat, I decided to, after 18 years of doing a Memorial Day retreat, weekend retreat, I had to miss punk rock bowling every year for the last 18 years. So I'm shifting it so that I can go with Brandon to Vegas. Um, and we're gonna do the retreat in the city, May 10th through 12th. Um, it's overnight. Yeah, two nights. Yeah, residential, there's this retreat center right on the lake. It's a Presbyterian church thing, but we already booked it and it's pretty cool. There's only, I think only 25 people can come. It's a little bit small, but the room that we're gonna be meditating in, like you're looking at Echo Park Lake up on like the third floor. And it's this cool view of on, on the roof, you can do walking meditation and you like see downtown. And it's, it's really cool to be, uh, I think it's gonna be quite cool to be on retreat in the city rather than in the desert or in the woods or going to do it urban um class is done by donation give lots of money and i hope to see you <laughs> next week many goodness that comes be shared with all beings and all realms may each one of us get as free as possible may we continue to make progress in ending the ignorance of racism on this planet and uh, may we create a positive change and in, from the inside out Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.